Profit is almost a four-letter word to some people. Profit seems to bring out the worst in the people not earning one or not as much of one as they want. Well, that's another show. This show is about profit, what it is, why it is a good thing, and what it can reveal to the budding entrepreneur. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 106. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Check out my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, on Amazon or on my blog page, culinarylibertarian.com slash cooking for comfort. On that page, you'll find a link to order the book and see reader photos of the dishes they've made. The most recent was the ribs recipe. He posted a video on Facebook. (laughs) Oh, man, they looked good. Also on that page, you can download and read the introduction. You'll need salt to make those flavors sing. I get my salts from Savory Spice. Their Mount Hood Toasted Onion Rub, not a salt, but a dry rub, is actually the reason my onion chip dip recipe is the best. The recipe is on the blog. Get your salt and onion mix at culinarylibertarian.com slash savory spice. My guests today are James Harrigan and Anthony Davies from the Words and Number podcast by Fee. James is Managing Director of the Center of Philosophy of Freedom at the University of Arizona and is the F.A. Hayek Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. James has written extensively for the popular press, with articles appearing in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, U.S. News and World Report, and other outlets. His current work focuses on the intersections between political economy, public policy, and political philosophy. Anthony is the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education and Associate Professor of Economics at Duquesne University. He is author of Understanding Statistics and co-author of Principles of Microeconomics. Anthony has also written hundreds of op-eds appearing in the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, USA Today, New York Post, and more. James and Anthony together are co-authors of Cooperation and Coercion. James and Anthony, thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Thanks. Our pleasure. So I'm going to open this by saying, gentlemen. Oh, it didn't work. You're supposed to say where. What? <laughs> yeah, our, our silence should be in, indicative of our confusion. And that must be what it was. It's All too right. early for James and too late in the day for me. But it's for, well, hmm, now that's interesting. That's a whole other show to figure out why that's the case. James, All right. James, James, James is several time zones over and is a night owl. I'm an early person. So we have oh. about four, there's 45 minutes that overlap each day in which we're both top of our games. 
Fair enough. And I, I sort of I was putting my time frame on your time frame, and I forgot that James is closer to me than you are, both geographically and therefore also time-wise. Yeah. All right. It, it, it's still too early for me right now, but we're well, still get through this. <laughs> well, go grab a beer and we'll move <laughs> on. Uh, I've invited you on to talk profit. And perhaps the best way to start a discussion about profit is to discuss business, what it is, what it does, and at least how a price functions in a business. Now, to Ant, this is probably the easy part. The challenge will be making this sound like it isn't a 4,000-level class. Right. And I think people get off on the wrong foot when they think about profit because they they look at dollars. And dollars are a, are a zero-sum game. If I give you $20, you now have $20 and I don't. And we have a tendency, if we look at the dollars, to think in terms of you won and I lost. But the dollars are simply a tool that we use to transfer ownership of goods and services. It's the goods and services that ultimately matter. And so when when you produce something, a, a wonderful dinner, and I give you $20 for it, I get the dinner. That's what's important. Now, you got the $20, but in a sense, the $20 doesn't matter because what really matters is that you can go and give that $20 to somebody else and get something in exchange. It's the things that you get that matter. And so when we look at profit, what we notice is People who are providing things to others that others highly value will collect dollars. The dollars are a sign that they have provided something to the community, something to others that the uh, that gives the others much happiness. Right. So it, it sounds a little bit like there's a distinction to be made between revenue and profit. So you've given me $20 for a, a dinner, but... I didn't conjure that food out of thin air. I had, right. That food had to come from someplace. So I had a, I had, there was a cost to me as the chef to buy the food. And, and then for the, you know, we can get into the technicalities of the rent for the establishment and the insurance and the utilities, but there is a cost associated to running a business, a restaurant. And then paying the cooks to cook the food. So you give me $20, which looks like I'm up 20 bucks, but I got a brother, I got to tell you. In the restaurant business, if you're clearing 4% profit, my goodness, you're doing a great job. And that's why that's what people don't see. Yeah. It, if you bring cost into the game, it becomes even more interesting. Let's let's suppose you go out and you buy $17 worth of of um you know, vegetables and meat and whatnot, and you you mix that together in using whatever magic you have, and what comes out is a meal, and the meal is is so valuable to me, I'd pay you $20 for that meal. Well, look at what just happened. You took $17 worth of resources and converted those resources into something that's worth 20 So that $3 profit that you made is indicative of the value you added to to those vegetables and to those meats. And when you look at it that way, the higher your profit is, the better of a job you've done. 
you've taken resources worth X and produced something worth 2X or 3X. The dollars are your reward for providing that extra value to society. Right. So I've been reading about a, a movement, and I sort of hate these words, called food sovereignty, which is also a stupid phrase. And there are some really good points to be made about people having access, which is another one of those weird words, to food and opportunities to, and more importantly in, in the U.S., opportunities to grow your own food and eat the food you grow. That's a, I've talked about that on the show before where that has not been the case. One of the points that is not a good point from the food sovereignty folks is they want to abolish capitalism and profit, which is why we started talking about what is profit and why would somebody want to do away with that? I think th- this always puzzles me when people say things like this, we want to abolish capitalism and abolish profit. Because it says to me that the person isn't understanding the terms that they're using. Let's start off with the grow your own food idea. It's a horrible idea. And the reason it's a horrible idea is because all of the wonder that we have in front of us, the buildings and energy and computers and television programs and, and food and all of this stuff, we have precisely because humans figured out that some of us are more skilled at some things than others. It would be a complete waste of resources for me to go out and try and and grow food and make something. You are much better at that than I am. And it would similarly be a huge waste of resources for you to go out and figure out what's going on in the economy and provide economic advice to people. I'm much better than you at that. If I do my thing and you do your thing, and then we exchange what you do well for what I do well, we both end up better off. The idea of growing our own food is to take that that process that's given us this all this wonder and reverse it back to the Stone Age, where each of us did all the things ourselves, and we end up living in poverty because of it. Right, right Ant, but there's any number of reasons why people might want to grow their own food. Uh, I like having a garden and this sort of thing, and I might even like to have a, a gentleman's farm at some point in the future. The idea that we're going off the rails when people grow their own food, I don't think that's right. It, we go off the rails when they say, comma, and everybody else must be forced to do this too. That that seems to be the, the exact second they get it wrong. And And notice what they're doing. They want to abolish a way of life, and the way of life they want to abolish is natural, right? Human beings, when they come together, trade with each other as a matter of human nature. And yet these people are saying, what we really need to do is do away with this part of human nature that we don't particularly like. Therefore, everyone must grow their own food. This is authoritarianism wrapped up in a menu. Huh. That's, a, that's a decent point, James, and it is. it gets to the point, and Ant made the point also, that people are using terms they don't fully understand. And this isn't to go off on the food sovereignty folks. Some of their legitimate issues are that small farmers are not being compensated for the things that they do grow, and but this becomes a very complicated web of international trade and and governments wherever these people are in 180 different countries and at some point they are trading with themselves in purely market form 
but this can quickly turn into a Gary Chartier discussion, which is <laughs> it's just not the focus of the thing here. Um, one of the things I think is important when we're talking about selling stuff, and I mentioned before, is a price. And a price is is a tool, but how does the price function? Uh, well, we'll talk about a capitalist society, or at least what a market society is probably a better term. Uh, how does the price function and indicate what does it what does the price do for the consumer? The the price the price enables the economy to self-correct. So people who who imagine a utopia where you know everybody is you're growing your food and I'm growing my food and and so forth what they're doing is imagining how they would organize society so they would have all right some people making food and some people making clothing and some people making other things and it raises the the very important question how much how much of our resources should go into food production versus production of houses versus production of medical care and you have to keep in mind that these things are all connected. So if you say we need more food, you have by definition also said we need less housing and less medical care because you can't have more of one without the other. So you have this problem if you're trying to direct this, set it up yourself, of simply not having enough information to be able to make those decisions well. In a capitalist system, in a market system, what happens is each individual makes his or her own decisions based on what he or she sees around them. And those decisions get reflected into a market price. So if I decide, yeah, I actually need more food, I'm going to go out, I'm going to buy more food. And that puts a little bit of upward pressure on the price. And as that pressure pushes price up, it sends a signal to the rest of the economy. First off to consumers, you might want to think twice about eating as much as you are because prices are getting kind of expensive. Second, to producers, you should think seriously about stop doing whatever you're doing and grow more food because it's more profitable to do so. The price is up. And you see what the price starts to do now. This free-floating price provides pressure to on consumers and producers to direct their energies where they're most needed. And if you boil that all the way down, what you find is that prices are information. And it's really just that simple. Well, I want to see if we can clarify a couple of terms, because I think there's a tendency in anyone's specialized vernacular to think everyone speaks the same terms. And so I can I can go off about cooking techniques and you can be like, what's this guy talking about? When you say you say that there's pressure put on prices and there's signals, what how how does a consumer recognize that? What does pressure look like? What is the effect of pressure? And what is the signal? What is he looking for? Yeah, that's very good. Um, you don't need to look for anything. You just react to it normally. For example, you're producing a a dish that requires lemons, and you go to the store, and the price of lemons is significantly higher than it was the last time you were there. Why is that the case? Well, it's the case because somebody somewhere else needed a bunch of lemons and in buying them up, put upward pressure on price, or maybe there was a, there was a bad harvest. There are fewer lemons there. Again, upward pressure on price. But notice what it does to you. You don't have to be concerned with how many other people need lemons and what's the heart lemon harvest look like. All you need to be concerned with is the price of lemons is 20% higher than it was last week. And does that mean I should buy lemons or perhaps I could substitute limes? 
And you you do that trade-off in your head. You say limes aren't as good, but you know what? For 20%, we'll go with the limes. You just reacted to the price. And you did exactly what the price it wants you to do. You cut back on consuming this thing that suddenly has become dear in exchange for consuming something else that's less dear. Okay. Well, that, now that's that's an example I think that, that people can sort of put their mind around. This this thing, profit, there's a strong sense, and maybe it's been here for a while, that profit is a four-letter word. Now, there's an excellent chance that it is, for the people who are opposed to it, based on your both of yours, college campus experience, high school campus experience, what's behind the idea that profit is bad? I think what's behind the idea is, is that people confuse capitalism for cronyism. And, and so we see situations where somebody, maybe a rich person or a corporation, what have you, co-ops the government to put weight on the scale in favor of that individual. We saw a thing in this country perhaps a year ago where um, there was a uh, diabetes drug and this entrepreneur bought up this company that was a sole provider of the diabetes drug and raised the price of the thing like a thousand percent and people lost their minds saying, look, this guy is a profiteer. This is the problem with profit. And notice something interesting here. This isn't a capitalism problem. It's a cronyism problem. The reason this guy had cornered the market on this particular diabetes drug was because the government created him as set him up as a monopoly. That is through patent law, the government said no one may compete with this guy. And so this guy ends up co-opting the government to make more money from people rather than in the pure capitalist sense making money from people because the thing you're offering them, they like better than the dollars in their pockets. And so they voluntarily give them to you. That sort of profit, voluntary profit, is a sign of something very right going on. And I think I think all that's right. But there's another class of people too. And it's been my experience on campus and in life more generally, that people do not associate profit with um, production. Right, that the idea that you can make a tidy profit by ramping up production on a thing that you're pretty sure other people want, and then you can offer that thing in the market, and if you're right and other people do want it, well, congratulations, you just became wealthier. Um, if if you're wrong and they don't like it, you know you've just lost your shirt. And I think this cause and effect is largely lost on a, on a generation of of our young people right now, and. I think you can see this, right? Um, they wear Che Guevara t-shirts. But think about that. They go out and they buy Che Guevara t-shirts, right? And then they, they reach into their pockets and they produce their iPhones. Right? There are all kinds of products that the these people are more than happy to pay for. And they never really worry about where the profit goes. There's just a, another subset of products that they don't want, and they assume those products are here, and the net result is that people are somehow oppressed by them. Uh, food, I think, fits into this category pretty easily. Yeah, and I think you, you, you're saying something interesting here, James, which is people notice the the entrepreneurs who have made it big. We see Jeff Bezos with his $180 billion uh, in the bank. We see um, 
Bill Gates with his billions of dollars. And we look at that and we think at a gut level, there's something wrong with that, that this guy has all those billions. But it's an observation bias because you're seeing the couple of entrepreneurs who came up with an idea that people liked so much, they handed them billions of dollars and said, here, take our money. We want that thing you've invented. What you aren't seeing are the hundreds or thousands of entrepreneurs out there that came up with alternate ideas, tried them out, and discovered that people don't want that and lost their shirts or their homes or their jobs because of it. And, and so it's kind of odd to, to focus on the billionaires and say, this is what's wrong with capitalism because you're missing 99% of what's going on. You're missing the fact that a bunch of people took risks. You happen to be looking at the ones that paid off. Right. And Anthony and I don't even like to talk about capitalism as a class of things, right? We, we like to talk about free markets because capitalism brings with it all the baggage of cronyism, as Ant was saying before. Free markets, on the other hand, have no baggage whatsoever because everybody who comes to arrive at a trade with someone else only makes both sides of the trade happier. This is not right. always the case when we're dealing with capitalism per se. It is literally always the case in free markets. Right. Uh, there's, I think, a, a valuable distinction to be made between uh, Gates or Bezos' wealth versus the currency in the bank. And I think a lot of people see that amazingly big number and think that they're both rolling around naked in $100 bills, but, I, but that overlooks how much infrastructure and and capital buildings and machines and, and just, I don't even know what the stuff is that makes the stuff, but it isn't currency. It's not sitting around in a corner collecting dust. Yeah, that that's one of the things that people overlook. Um, you know, we say that Bezos is worth $185 billion. He does not have $185 billion in cash. What he has is Amazon stock that is currently valued at $185 billion. And if we turned to him and said, okay, we're going to confiscate half your wealth, cut the government a check for $50 billion, to do that, he'd have to sell off a huge chunk of his Amazon stock. That would cause the stock to tank. And all of a sudden, your and my IRAs or 401k plans or our pensions all of a sudden take a nosedive. And, and what you're seeing here is that he's not sitting on cash. Rather, he's sitting on, if you want to call it paper profits, it's, it's the stock it's the Amazon stock that the rest of us have said, that company is such a good idea that I'm willing to pay, it's currently $3,000 for a share of that. Now, that's an, an interesting point that I've never heard anybody bring up as a response to Reedy Bernie or anybody else saying we have to have this one-time fat cat tax on these people. And it's, I mean, you're not just taxing that person, you're taxing every shareholder in that company. Right. And possibly even every consumer down the line, because now it's, it's, you've just made the prices at Amazon go up. Yeah. Which you should, not you should find no surprise here that the politicians agitating for this sort of thing don't understand the economics of the issue because they don't understand the politics or the legality or the constitutionality of the issue either, because none of this, a wealth tax is perfectly unconstitutional. 
it would never pass the Supreme Court's attention. So what they're doing here is just fomenting class warfare. That's actually their well, goal. Everybody knows that they will never get a wealth tax onto the table. Well, that's it's part of what the real job is, is to get elected again. And that's, that's right. and at that, they are spectacularly able. All right. I want to take, uh, I want to, bleh, bleh, I'm going to trip over my tongue. I want to get into the idea that profit is exploitation. But before I do, let's take a moment for a word from my affiliate. Folks, California Wine Club, the premier internet wine club, ends the frustration of staring at the grocery store shelves wondering what wine is worth your time. California Wine Club members shop wine selections from small vineyards, which means you get artisanal wine. Wine Club members can also ask wine questions of a wine consultant who will work with you to learn your preferences your flavor profiles, so you buy the perfect bottle. Membership also includes the California Wine Club Guide Uncorked, which offers tasting notes of the wines, pairing tips, and sometimes backstories on the vineyards. Membership starts with the Premier Series, and you can mix or match red or white wines and choose the frequency of delivery. California Wine Club subscriptions are also excellent gifts. And with the Wine Club Love It Guarantee, you can't go wrong. Click the banner on the show notes page or navigate to culinarylibertarian.com slash main to learn more about the Love It Guarantee and to join the premier internet wine club culinarylibertarian.com slash cawinemain to make informed choices about the wines you want to drink and the new wines when they're introduced. culinarylibertarian.com slash cawinemain or click the banner in the show notes page. Now let's get back into the show. Uh, The idea that profit is exploitation goes back a long way. As a thought, it seems to be wanting cohesion. Such such expressions seem to be couched with adjectives such as excessive. We just mentioned Bezos or other billionaires we like to hate making excessive profits. Well, where is that line? And Ant sort of brought it up a little bit. And who is to say? The suggestion seems to be if another worker didn't have a job, well, that evil billionaire couldn't exploit the worker. But there is an important element to that, which we touched on, but I think needs to be focused on more. I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is that exploitation requires that one party impose his or her will on the other. If if I come along and willingly buy something from Amazon, and in the process, Jeff Bezos makes a profit, I haven't been exploited. I, I voluntarily, well, I could have gone somewhere else. I could have gotten in my car and driven to Walmart. But I choose not to because it's much more convenient to have the thing delivered here. I just made a choice. I chose to enter this relationship. Now, would I rather that Bezos were charging me less money? Absolutely, I would rather he char- he charged me less money. But the fact is, even at the price he is charging, I'm willing to enter into this relationship. There is no exploitation there. Simply because I simply my wanting to pay less money does not make it exploitation, because if it does, we could make the argument in the other direction. He could say, well, I'd like to be charging more money. 
And the fact that Ant isn't buying my product means he's exploiting me. <laughs> I think you're going to have a hard time selling that one. Yeah, but notice the thing. The reason I would have a hard time selling it has nothing to do with our free will or the fact that we're entering into this contract voluntarily or not. It has to do with the fact that he has lots of money. Now, that's a weird definition of exploitation. Simply because you have a lot of money, you are de facto the exploiter. So your argument could be, and we're, we're doing argument fallacies here, if I were a business owner and didn't have billions of dollars in the bank, charging you a reasonable price that we voluntarily agree is worthy of the exchange, then I'm not exploiting you. Yes. It seems kind of idiotic. Well, you're not exploiting me if I have the ability to walk away. Provided you can't force me to buy your product, there's no exploitation. Now, let's suppose for the sake of argument that uh, your business is the only one around. It's the only one in, in my town. And if I'm going to buy somewhere else, I've got to drive 20 minutes. Still, I would argue that's not exploitation. Why? Because although you're charging more money, I could get in my car and drive 20 minutes somewhere else. I'm not willing to do so. That is, I am choosing to accept the price you're paying. Now, notice something interesting that happens in a free market environment. When we're in this situation, you're the only business and you're charging a high price. That high price is a siren song to entrepreneurs everywhere. Come build a business that competes with this guy because he's making a ton of profit and you can get in on that too. And so an entrepreneur comes along, he builds a business, he gets in. How does he muscle in on that market share? By offering to sell at a slightly lower price. And now all of a sudden you have to compete with this guy and you have to drop your price and you see what happens. The high price actually brings with it the seeds of its own destruction. It calls on entrepreneurs to move in here and start producing more of this stuff. And before you know it, the price has fallen. Walter Black made a comment to me once that in a free market system, ultimately the 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 final price. I'm going to misquote it, but either the profit is zero, or the final price is zero, because ideally competition continues to push down, down, down. But at some point, we're going to get to that plate of vegetables and food that cost me something to put on the plate and to to sell my dinner to you for less than it cost me. Doesn't make any sense. That's right. That's right. So you, you'll, you'll sell it at a price that brings you what we could probably all call a fair return. That is, it's a, it's a profit that compensates you for the risk and the hassle of owning the business. But the only way you get to that fair price or the fair return is by letting the free market play itself out. If you try and control it, I guarantee you, you're not going to get to that price. And if you look at what's happened over time, Food has become much, much cheaper. And this isn't just in dollar terms. It's, it, it takes less of our labor to buy the food. You can work the money right out of this and only look at the hours we spend working. And not only has it become cheaper, it's become more abundant and we can get it from very, very strange and wondrous places, right? I walk through the grocery store and I can't believe how many different countries put food into the U.S. market at prices I can afford. It's really astonishing. It is astonishing. And that's the, the irony that you can do that, buy from small farmers from around the world, is, seems to be part of the thing that the food sovereignty people are shaking their fists at and yelling at, which confuses me, but that's 
another show, and it will be another show. Uh, let's talk for a minute, Ant, about and James. The instead of the thing Bezos is selling, the other thing he's paying for, which is labor, and there's a it seems to just never go away that. I don't, I don't actually hear about it from Microsoft, but we hear about it from Amazon because I guess the, the company they hate, that Amazon is exploiting the workers. But if the choices are simple, either work or don't work, how was the choice to voluntarily go take his money in the form of wage exploitation if the other choice is don't work and don't eat? Yeah, I think we're we're back to this question of is is the exchange voluntary? If he's offering a wage, let's pick a number, $15 an hour, and I walk up there and say, I'm willing to take that job for $15 an hour, would I like it if he paid me more? Absolutely, I would. But the fact that I voluntarily said, yeah, I'll take the job means there's no exploitation there. Now, we have to be really careful about this because if we claim somehow that the worker has a right to a higher wage, that you know, I should be able to come in here and, and Bezos should be forced to pay me $20 an hour. Okay, by the principle of equality then, what are his rights here? Does he have the right to demand or to force that I work there when you know someone else comes along and says, I'll pay you $25 and I say, thank you, Jeff. I'm now going to go take this job. Jeff, if he's an equal rights bearing individual, could just as well turn around and say, no, no, um, I was required to pay you $20 an hour. You're now required to remain at this job. It's an interesting question. And you see where this goes. If we don't, if we don't treat this exchange as voluntary, that is either party, me or Bezos, could walk away at any time. If we don't do that, then we aren't treating these two human beings as equal rights-bearing individuals. We're saying one of them has primacy over the other. Well, I think that's what they're saying. And I think your example of the billionaire having a different set of standards than the local pizza guy, and let's or, or let's call it the local widget guy. You buy a widget from Amazon for X dollars, you buy a widget from your local guy for X plus two dollars. The X plus two is an exploitation because the, the local guy isn't a billionaire. Bezos is a billionaire, so now he's somehow changed into this big demon. Well, I think they'd be perfectly happy to say, no, he doesn't have the right to to do these things. And that just gets, it's a level of crazy I can't figure out. James, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it seems to me that when you look at Jeff Bezos, what you should see, not what many people do see, but what you should see is a human being who made a lot of his fellow human beings very, very happy. So much so that he has more wealth now than he could ever hope to spend. And that's really astonishing that they can look at him and find a villain at, at roughly the same moment that they're ordering things on Amazon and they're, they're wondering how on earth it could get to them literally in one day in some cases is, is very telling, right? I, I use Amazon all the time. Why? Because they provide a service that is so unbelievable to me that of course I use it. If I can order something now and have it by this time tomorrow, there are some some products I could order right now and have in two hours, right? This is what Bezos has brought into our lives and our lives are better for it. How he becomes a villain here is beyond me. 
people look and they say, no one should, no one needs that much money. Well, it's really not your decision about how much money someone needs. It's your decision to do business with those people or not. And nobody chooses, comparatively speaking, almost nobody chooses not to do business with Amazon because it just makes us happier. Focusing on Bezos takes the attention away from where it really belongs. And the attention really belongs on you and me. I had a an argument on Twitter with somebody perhaps a year ago who was, who was saying, look, um, Bezos makes all these hundreds of millions of dollars running Amazon. He should take a pay cut so that the workers can, uh, can have a living wage. And I said, hang on a second. Let's do the math here. If Bezos took zero salary and, and zero stock options, and instead all of that value that would have been paid to Bezos, we divided amongst all of Amazon wor- Amazon's workers. When you're done, each worker ends up with pennies per hour raise. Conversely, I said to this person, well, look, suppose instead we put a $2 surcharge on every order from Amazon. Amazon makes so many, fulfills so many orders per year, $2 surcharge on every single order would enable Amazon to raise enough money to bring everybody up several dollars per hour. And the person's response was, no, I don't want that. I'm happy with Amazon's prices as they are. Imagine that. Yeah. And notice the hypocrisy here. We want, we want Amazon's workers to be paid more. But we, we, the ones who actually have the bulk of the money, not individually, but collectively, aren't willing to pay more to make that happen. Well, it's, I, th- I think hypocrisy is probably harsh. I think James made the point earlier that it's just flat out misinformation or not having any clue about, I mean, basic economics. It's just, it's just, that's a that, that's commentary on the government schools, but we're not going to do that this show. Yeah, you, you you may be right about that. I should go a little bit softer. It's 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 a lack of information. One case in point: people point to the oil companies, Exxon, for example. They'll say, "Look at all the profits Exxon makes," and it's you know X billion dollars per year or something. And what people are missing is the vast infrastructure required to produce pull oil out of the ground, manufacture into gasoline, get it to the gas stations to get into your car. That infrastructure is so gargantuan that those billions that Amazon makes end up, if you do the math, being round about a 5% return on Exxon's investment. In other words, Exxon's actually making far less profit than Domino's Pizza. And Domino's is fixing the roads. (laughs) <laughs> right. Domino's is not fixing the roads. Right, right, right. Yeah. But but I think that's one of the things we focus again, we focus on the dollars, forgetting what was necessary to bring the to bring about that profit in the first place. All right. Well, let's talk about for a minute a business that deliberately seeks no profit. And I want to clarify this is not the same as a business that operates as not for profit. They they earn a profit. They just have some obligations to not at the end of the year, show a profits that they got to invest in, you know, whatever capital goods of some kind. How this is this seems, I think, plain on its surface, but I think probably worth asking: What happens to the business that seeks on purpose to create no profit? Well, I think if if the business chooses to 
to earn no profit. There's a couple ways you can go about doing that. One is you can be so inefficient in producing your product that your costs are just, you know, they're so high that you aren't earning anything. And that as an economist, I would point to and say, well, you're just wasting society's resources. If it if it costs you $30 to produce a meal that you're selling for $30, either you've underpriced the meal or you're not a you're not an efficient cook. You're not buying the, you know, less expensive ingredients, this sort of thing. So that's one way to get no, no profit. The other way to get no profit actually I think is pretty smart. And that is do the best you can. Produce your product efficiently, price it well. And when you've got a bunch of money on the table because you've done such a good job and society has said, here, take our dollars. We love your product. Give it away. What's the next step? I'm waiting for the shoe to drop. No, give the money away. Yeah, oh, there, give there, the money away. There is no other shoe here. Uh, Aunt misses, or, or at least sounds like he misses. I don't think he really does. Misses a possibility. And that's that the corporation give it away to its own employees, which is just a co-op, right? So um, the problem there and the problem with giving it away more generally is that you don't have any savings in an account somewhere to get you through rough times. And you will go out of business very, very quickly if you make no profit and bank no profit for later days. It almost sounds like what we're saying is selling a good or a service at a profit gives that business owner resources to A, save for the rainy day, expand the business at some point in the future, increase efficiency at some point in the future with new capital goods, and continue offering that good or service for the next period of time, month, week, year, whatever it is. Sure. And if the business owner doesn't do any of those things, if instead he just banks it and the bank gets bigger and bigger and bigger, that's a siren call to entrepreneurs elsewhere to come in here and start competing with this guy. And when that happens, the price will begin to fall. I like that. I want to bring this conversation back to the food sovereignty idea. But before we do that, here's Jake to tell you about his podcast, Tasting Anarchy. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. All right. We've covered profit and business and why profit is good and necessary. The food sovereignty plank about profit and property, they seek to abolish private property, which I did mention to you before. <laughs> I did that on purpose. Uh, we might guess in the future that a plot of land uh, tended by, say, the common folk is now the resource center for this community's food. Well, without a profit incentive, what do we think is going to happen? And James, I think this is, and be both of you, but this seems to be sort of <laughs> a lob to you. Yeah, no, and, and we all know exactly what's going to happen here. You're going to run out of food, right? If, if there's no motivation for anybody to bring food to market, nobody will bring food to market. And sooner or later, that means everybody starves. It's really just that simple. We actually have lots of human history that points 
exactly to this outcome. It's so obvious that I think you would have to maybe be an idiot to miss it. And that doesn't sound like much of a challenge. Yeah, well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. I mean, you see in Venezuela right now how, you know, all these things get tied up together in a series of very bad decisions. But by the time you're done um, with working your way through all the problems in Venezuela, what do you find? You find that they can't bring food to market. It's, it's literally not possible to make a profit anymore because of the death spiral the currency is in. So what do they do there? They force people, they conscript people to go work on farms so they can have some food. Now, where we live here in the West, we refer to that as slavery. And it's not to be done. But look at how desperate you can become on, on the back end of a food difficulty, right? Food is really the very first thing you need to think of when you ask, do we have a functioning politics? In the United States, I want people to really think about this for a second. We throw away food. Imagine that. We throw it away. We've decided that past a certain day, this is no good, or we have leftovers, there's nothing we can do with them, throw them in the trash. That's the sign of a fully functional society, when you have so much food that you can afford to throw it away. But if there's no profit motive, you will run out of food very, very quickly. I think you've hit on two points, and they're almost polar opposites. Uh, so one having so much food left over that you throw it away would be by some described as a dysfunctional society. And we also have then the tragedy of the commons, the idea that if you make everyone in charge of this place, well, no one's in charge of that place because everyone thinks probably that somebody else is going to do it and nobody ever does. Yeah, I think I think that the question of the dysfunctional society, we have to distinguish between what James is talking about, which is the economy operating, and and on the other side, um, some some sense of moral behavior. It is certainly it is certainly not right that we throw food away. That's a moral question. It's not an economic question. We can throw food away when when we have lots of it, or we can throw it away when we have little of it. The throwing away is a moral question. What James is pointing out is that the economy is is highly functional in that it produces so much food that it becomes possible to throw it away. That's not to say that we should. It's to say that that's the 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 magnitude of food that we can produce. Well, the government does oblige us to throw any any number of foods away after a certain period of time. So it's not just a moral question, right? The moral question, as far as we're concerned, was answered. And now we have the political question that sits on top of it. There are all kinds of food that, that gets thrown away all the time here. And the fact that nobody misses it is the good part, right? We can, we all need food. It's, it's life itself when you look at it, but we have so much of it that we can actually have rules about it. You know who doesn't? People who are starving. And that's clearly not us. So I think we're doing something right here. And if you take profit out of the equation, we'll be starving soon enough. I have, I have literally no doubt about that. You know, I think Ant's point about, and I'm, I'm going to, to distill it more perhaps, that the confusion between the economic and the moral is 
Well, muddled, and I think a lot of people are focusing on the moral, overlooking the economic, or thinking that the moral act is also, has to be, the economic act. And if throwing, if, if the choice is throwing the food away because the FDA invented an arbitrary date and the food can't tell time, it doesn't know it's expired, or giving it to somebody who who can consume the food, and so we've done a good thing. I think that's where a lot of challenge lies in trying to reach people and explain that, yes, while these are seemingly opposed concepts, they can exist side by side, but one requires a level of thinking and dispassionate consideration, whereas just emoting to the moral side is a whole lot easier. Yeah, I think I think your observation extends to people's perceptions of the difference between capitalism and socialism. And I think in this, we get the causality backward. It is the case that in a moral society, people who have will give to those who have not. And so you'll have less poverty in, in a moral society. Now, the causality is moral people give to the poor. That doesn't, the causality doesn't work the other way. I can't design a society and impose by law that I'm going to take from the rich and give to the poor and all, and assume that what results from this is morality. The morality comes from the individuals. It doesn't come from the legal system. And so if you have immoral people in a capitalist system, they will behave immorally. But those same people put them in a socialist system. They don't magically become moral. They'll still behave immorally. Because the laws don't change behavior. The laws don't change the behavior. And so what the economist says is, look, if you're trying to use laws that govern the economy to elicit moral behavior, you've got the absolute wrong tool for the job here. All you're going to do, from the first case, you're not going to have any impact on moral behavior. In the second, you're just going to break the economy. And sometimes it seems like we have danced right up to the edge of this. And, and and then there are times when I'm looking at blood oranges from somewhere and they're not indigenous to America. I think, you know, maybe not. Although, by the way, folks, blood oranges are out of season. Don't go look for them. It was a bad example. Well, generally generally speaking, I think we've, we've done well because generally speaking, over the past two, 200 years, 300 years, the world has moved in fits and starts toward more of a free market model. And as evidence of that, look at world poverty. In 1798, when Thomas Malthus wrote, he looked at the world population that was growing exponentially and said, oh my God, because at the same time the world population was growing exponentially, 95% of humans on the planet lived in extreme poverty. Now, fast forward from 1798 to today, and the number of humans has increased by a factor of 10. Where there were 800 million, there's now 8 billion. But world poverty has declined by a factor of 10. For the first time in human history, fewer than 10% of people on the planet live in extreme poverty. And that's market, market forces that we have to thank for that. Well, I, do, I don't just, well, let me rephrase that. I agree with you. You have both written together a book which I mentioned in the opening, Cooperation and Coercion, 
give the elevator pitch for your book, and I will put a link for it on the show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 106. James, you want to do it? It's all you, Ant. Cooperation and coercion. What we do in this book is we look at all all of the ways that humans come together to achieve various things. And what we notice is that humans organize themselves in one of two ways. They either cooperate or they coerce one another, typically through government. And the theme of the book is to ask the question, under what circumstances is one form of organization better than the other? Wow. Spectacularly done. I want to move on to the fun part of the show, and it's a few short answer questions. Now, I've never done this with two, so one of you is going to have an advantage at having heard the question and have a moment or two to ponder your response. So this isn't hard stuff, but it's kind of fun. Of the five flavors, bitter, sweet, sour, salty, or umami, which one do you prefer the most? Umami. <laughs> What's your favorite food? Double cheeseburgers. Oh. I'm sorry, what? Double cheeseburger. And? Oh, man. Eggs Benedict. Oh, God. Wow. What's your least favorite food? Anything that ever swam. <laughs> Okra. What sound do you love? I like that high-pitched ding from a from a metal you know the you have a, a like a metal wind chime just a single that ah. you know yeah i like the sound of a mechanical watch ticking what sound do you hate anything that happens before 1 p.m <laughs> i was going to say my alarm clock <laughs> what is your favorite food indulgence ice cream Oh, Brie, no question. Really? God, that's gross. good, man. Both of you love, love, great answers. Since you are both with the FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, and I have spoken to Larry Reed, a firm barbecue fan, this last question is just for you two. What's your favorite type of barbecue? Probably Texas beef barbecue. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know barbecue. I know James okay. James loves it, and he takes me places because he likes barbecue, but that's the extent of my knowledge. Well, it is an art form, and when done well in probably any variety, a craft done superbly, no matter what the thing is, is a thing to behold. Texas is a good answer. I think that's I, my personal preference is the Carolina mustardy vinegary one. Yep, nothing wrong with that either. All right, so we did mention cooperation and coercion, but are there other titles you would recommend about economics or business for people interested in learning? And I'm going to tamper this a little bit with not economics in one lesson because I had that mentioned just a couple episodes ago. Hmm. That does make it harder. <laughs> Ant, I know you've got something that fits this bill. Oh, well, I do. friend of ours, Howie Beecher, wrote uh, Free Our Markets which I highly recommend. Of course, that's not what I was talking about. I was talking about Ant's other favorite book that he's forgotten about right now called The Armchair Economist. Yeah, Armchair Economist, that's getting kind of dated now. Armchair Economist was an early version of what people today know as um, Freakonomics. Yeah. But I, I find free, free our markets better than, than either of those. 
I think all of these are perfectly good. And, and hopefully after, you know, dipping the toe in the pool, people might want to go check out Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations, but that's a pretty heavy walk. Um, so don't start there. No, don't start there and don't start with human action. Read it, but don't start start there. Somebody suggested that we all just listen to human action in a books on tape kind of way because it's so so long. Maybe. I don't know Uh, if I could listen to that. I've never listened to an audio book, so I don't know. uh, Where can people find your podcast and how else may they engage you online? Oh, James loves email. Um, Shut up. They can find the podcast literally anywhere they like to get their podcasts. We have total saturation in the podcast market. It's pretty easy to find. And and please do subscribe on as many devices as you have. We all have mortgage payments to make, so this is how that works. Um, James, you, you haven't told them the name of the podcast. Well, the name of the podcast is Words and Numbers. I'm Words, and Anthony, given what he has just said, is clearly Numbers. <laughs> so there you go. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, too, which I, I welcome you to do. I am at James R. Harrigan. And Anthony, I know you are on Twitter since you've discussed your argument. I am. What is your Twitter handle? At Anthony Davies. All right. Well, I will have all of those books and those links and the podcast link up on the show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 106. Gentlemen, where it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, we, we know what it took to get here. So I appreciate your time today. Thank, Thank you. you. Take care. Thank you. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll put the Armchair Economist and Free Our Markets links on the show notes page. I'll also add both Ant and James' Twitter links and the link to Fee for their podcast. The Thanksgiving and Christmas menu selection is on the blog. Uh, the, you, you click the little tab there. There you'll find my recipes for some of the necessary holiday foods. I'll be adding to it, including some gluten-free options I've been testing. And just to tease you and hold me to it, uh, I'm working on a Christmas cookie cookbook with gluten-free versions of conventional cookies, so they'll be side by side. (laughs) And now, now I've committed myself, so hold me to it. Share this episode on social media to your friends and like it on your feed. Also, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and leave a rating and review. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.